This section will deal with the issue of contemporary Muslim apocalyptic and its manifestations uh, throughout the world. By contemporary, I mean here those uh, materials that have appeared during the last 20 years. Now, apocalyptic can have several different ramifications in the contemporary Muslim world. One of those is on a popular literary uh, level. Those uh, types of, of Muslim apocalyptic tracts, booklets, uh, full-scale books, and Internet materials that, uh, that are so easily obtainable are usually materials that are an attempt to relate contemporary events uh, to classical prophecies. Now, these things can have some relationship to radical Islam, but they do not necessarily have to. We'll mostly talk about this type of literature, but I would also like to make sure that, that people are familiar with a secondary type of literature, which would be radical Islamic attempts to use classical apocalyptic materials to the benefit of those groups that are actually fighting in jihad. And that the type of, of material we can call uh, apocalyptic jihad uh, material. Now, when we take a look at contemporary Muslim apocalyptic literature, the first thing that we can note is that the Mahdi is not that important in contemporary Muslim apocalyptic. In, in classical uh, Sunni narratives and Shiite material, it's very important to identify who is the Mahdi uh, and to describe uh, his appearance, uh, his activities, and so forth. Uh, but that is really not that important in uh, popular apocalyptic materials. Now, the place where it becomes a little bit more important is in, uh, is in radical Muslim literature. And there, because of the lack of a caliph, remembering that the last Ottoman caliph was deposed in 1922-1924, uh, there is necessity to, to establish some sort of a pan-Islamic caliphal state that would encompass the entire Muslim world. Now, in that particular interpretation, the figure of the Mahdi is really blurred with that of the caliph. And so presumably any caliph that would be elected would essentially be a Mahdi-like character. So calls for a Sharia state, calls for some type of, a, of an idealized uh, state are in fact messianic. And those uh, you can see from, uh, from the time of the rule of the Taliban um, in, uh, in Afghanistan, where there was some attempt to actually, uh, to actually proclaim a caliph. Uh, their leader, uh, Mullah Omar Mujahid, actually proclaimed himself to be the Mira Mu'minin, the, uh, the commander of the believers, uh, which is a caliphal title. This was not accepted by most Muslims, but it was an attempt by the Taliban and their uh, Arab allies to actually elect a, a type of a caliph. So movements that, uh, that are trying to call for some sort of a Sharia state oftentimes have behind them some type of a messianic expectation that needs to be fulfilled. Um, and those movements oftentimes exist in places like Pakistan, Nigeria, Libya, and Egypt. Um, there's different uh, attempts by, by radical Islamic groups, such as the Taliban, such as the Darul Islam in, uh, in Indonesia, such as the Jama'a Islamiyah in Indonesia, and the Union of Islamic Courts in, uh, in Somalia, 
uh, during the last couple of years to actually found uh, an Islamic state, if not in the entirety uh, of a given state, then at least partially, to take over par- part of a state, to proclaim a Sharia state, and then eventually to take these sort of patchwork states and uh, to amalgamate them into a larger uh, Muslim entity, which presumably would take uh, a long time. And in a few cases, there are actually successful Muslim uh, groups like Hamas uh, or uh, the MILF, uh, the the Moro Islamic uh, Liberation Front, who actually have managed to establish Muslim states in a given entity and are recognized uh, de facto. Now, for the most part, contemporary Muslim apocalyptic literature is, uh, is directed towards some types of dates. This is a very dangerous tendency on their, uh, on their part. Um, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, note a couple of classical traditions that are oftentimes used to describe uh, the contemporary events. Uh, one of them is used very commonly by, uh, by uh, radical Muslims who say, uh, who cite this particular tradition, a group of my community will continue fighting for the truth, victorious over those who oppose them, until the last of them fights the Dajjal. That's taken from Abu Dawud al-Sijistani's uh, Sunan. Um, and another one that they cite is, Behold, God sent me with a sword just before the hour of judgment and placed my daily sustenance beneath the shadow of my spear and humiliation and contempt upon those who oppose me. And whoever imitates a group is numbered among them. This, uh, this tradition is cited from early jihad literature. Uh, I've already discussed its ramifications in the section on jihad. But here I'd like to note the fact uh, that in both of these cases, the Muslim community is presented as being, uh, first of all, divided into a remnant. Uh, a, a, a section of the Muslim community is one that is fighting continually for the truth. It's fighting uh, over a long period of centuries, and the last entity that it will fight will be the Dajjal, the, uh, the Muslim Antichrist. Also, that sense of Muhammad as uh, being sent just before the hour of judgment increases the um, necessity for haste uh, during fighting. So uh, let's go back to some of, the, uh, some of the problems in contemporary Muslim apocalyptic literature beyond uh, the issue of uh, the dating. The, uh, the dates that have been associated with, uh, with contemporary Muslim apocalyptic literature have invariably been taken from, uh, from Christian uh, dating schemes. In other words, usually the year 2000 and now the year 2012 or the year 2022 are oftentimes dates that are taken uh, and utilized by Muslim apocalyptists. Obviously, the year 2000 had absolutely no uh, apocalyptic significance uh, known, uh, but it uh, acquired it by the feeling that both Jews and Christians were actually going to do something during the year 2000, and therefore the Muslims had to do something as well. So now while one can't say that that very much happened during the year 2000, it was the beginning of the second intifada for the Palestinians, 
which was touched off by an apocalyptic event, uh, the need to defend uh, the Dome of the Rock. One of the characteristics of, uh, of contemporary Muslim apocalyptic literature is very strongly that feeling of conspiracy. Conspiracy to destroy Islam. That there is uh, some sort of a worldwide uh, desire on the part of all, Muslim, uh, all non-Muslims to actually destroy Islam in its entirety and to kill or uh, convert all Muslims. This is given a reality by a very interesting tradition known as the tradition of Thalban, uh, which is actually a classical tradition, but not cited that much, um, that you find now today on a regular basis. And it's important to cite it, actually, because it's, it's, uh, it's cited so often in contemporary apocalyptic. It says, the messenger of God said, the nations are about to flock against you from every horizon just as hungry people flock to a kettle. Uh, and with that, you can see some of the, uh, the conspiracy-oriented uh, issues already being brought out. Everybody is coming at the Muslims, as it were, to eat them, to devour them. We said, O messenger of God, will we be few on that day? He said, No, you will be many as far as your number goes, but you will be scum, like the scum of the flash flood since fear will be removed from the hearts of your enemies and weakness will be placed in your hearts. We said, O messenger of God, what does the word uh, wahan, weakness, mean? He said, love of this world and fear of death. It's hard to imagine a tradition that is more useful for radical Islam and more affirms radical Islam's worldview than this tradition. It's, it's really very centrally placed and it's not surprising that you find uh, just about anybody who is any, anything in radical Islamic uh, uh, movements uh, citing this particular tradition. It's cited in the very first uh, section of uh, Osama bin Laden's 1998 uh, proclamation. Um, it's, it's cited and discussed at length in just about any al-Qaeda or one of its ideological uh, subordinates, uh, writings, and so forth. Whole books have been de uh, devoted to it. So one can see the reasons why that's the case. First of all, uh, the tradition predicts that there'll be a time where Muslims will be many. There'll be many Muslims, but yet they will have little or a little influence inside the world. And, and the interesting thing about this tradition is that it describes and it, it affirms a certain hatred uh, and, and self-loathing of Muslims is that they're nothing but scum, like scum of the flash flood. And oftentimes what you find in, in, the, in the traditions, uh, in, the, in the writings of, of radical Muslims, uh, is, that they, the, is that they'll agree, is that they'll say stuff like, uh, yes, O prophet of God, you know, you were right. We're nothing but scum right now. You know, and th this affirms their worldview that there's something fundamentally wrong with Islam right now, is that Islam is not in the position that it should be. It does not have that dominant, God-ordained position that it should within this world. And the tradition pr uh, uh, proceeds to answer the reasons why or at least uh, from a Muslim point of view. It says, fear will be removed from the hearts of your enemies and weakness will be placed in your hearts. 
And uh, the, this weakness is love of this world and fear of death. In other words, the reason why the Muslim community is in the position that it is is because it's unwilling to fight. It loves this world too much and it's unwilling to fight for Islam. It's possible to say many other different things about this tradition, but it's, uh, it, it's an amazing tradition and radical Muslims use it rightly uh, and to their benefit hugely. Um, and it's, it's cited all over. So that conspiracy aspect of, uh, of, uh, of contemporary apocalyptic is extremely strong. The regular citation of uh, documents such as the, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, this uh, document which uh, describes the, uh, the world as being under the control of the Jews, being, uh, being dominated by a sort of antichrist-like figure who is uh, supposed, to, supposed to be against all religions and try and, uh, and, and develop a, a, a technological, scientific, anti-God state. And so material coming out of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is extremely common inside, uh, inside Muslim uh, apocalyptic literature. But uh, even more than that, one finds uh, citations from the Bible. Now, these are not found in radical literature at all. But they are found in great quantities inside the popular manifestations of apocalyptic materials. And I think that the reasons why are fairly clear. First of all, uh, the Bible for the past 50, and in some cases almost 100 years, has been used consistently by Christians to find prophecies concerning uh, the end of the world and the present time. And books about the finding of prophecies are fairly widespread and oftentimes translated into Arabic or other different uh, Muslim languages. And so there is a tradition already existing of Christian exegesis of the Bible to find prophecies uh, concerning uh, the present time. Those prophecies cannot be extracted from the Quran. The Quran, although it has eschatological sections, uh, descriptions of heaven, descriptions of the cataclysmic end of the world, does not have plausible historical or pseudo-historical sequences that can be utilized as actual prophecies. And this is a problem if a Muslim is going to try and relate prophecies to the contemporary world. Because ideally, the prophet of God, Muhammad, would have included all sorts of material about uh, the end of the world inside uh, the holy book. There's a certain quote from one of the apocalyptic writers that uh, he, he starts off his book on the United States. He says, how is it possible that, uh, that God says in his holy book, we have included everything inside the book when there's absolutely no mention of the power of the United States in there? And so this is a major problem. One cannot deal with it very easily. 
You can either look at uh, or look at uh, at ancient material and try and create some sort of a code right there, which sometimes they do. Some sort of uh, some sort of radical rereading of classical material. Sometimes using uh, gematria to figure things out, or using various different code words uh, that are decipherable within the text. Or it's possible to strike out and use absolutely new virgin material. Now, from the point of view of the Muslim apocalyptus, this is the case with regard to the Bible. Now, there are several different op- uh, problems with that, and the most prominent of which is that the, the Quran and Islamic doctrine overall teaches that, uh, that the Bible, the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible— the, as we would call it, the entire Bible, has been forged or changed willfully by both Jews and Christians and no longer constitutes an acceptable revelation uh, in the eyes of God. And so traditionally, Muslims have avoided using the Bible and have, uh, have been careful to see it as a, as a book that has been tampered with and not uh, as a complete um, usable uh, entity. However, there's a great deal of material in there that can be, if one reads certain things, such as uh, identity of saints or so forth, as Muslims, one can do a Muslim reading of the Bible. And here I'd like to bring before you uh, the exegesis of uh, Daniel chapter 7, which you can find in, uh, in Muslim apocalyptic writings. This is a radical rereading of, of Daniel 27, uh, uh, sorry, uh, 727, 721, and 727, uh, where uh, the, uh, the Muslim exegete takes this particular verse. He says, Then sovereignty and power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will will worship and obey him. Daniel 7.27. So he says in, in identification of that, he says, The saints are the Muslims, the believers and the fighters in the path of God, since they are described in the present day Antichrist media as fundamentalist terrorists and extremists. In other words, he has very carefully identified what is an ambiguous word inside the text that no Jew or Christian would ever identify with being Muslims. Uh, He is radically rereading this text uh, in light of his conspiratorial outlook. His word, the sovereignty will be handed over to the saints, refers to the continuing victory they will have in the establishment of the Islamic caliphate, at the hands of the Ancient of Days, who he identifies as the Mahdi, first of all, then their victory over Crusader Europe, second of all, then their final victory under the leadership of the true Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, over the Antichrist and his armies of Masonic and hypocritical followers, thirdly, and after that, the purification of the earth from Gog and Magog. So he has a completely different outlook on the exegesis of these verses, than would a Christian apocalyptist. But he has an answer for each what, what the identity of each particular entity is. But he goes even deeper than that with a conspiratorial outlook about why exactly it is that Muslims are in a state of failure today. 
He says, Daniel then continues speaking of the present and continuous struggle taking place between the human kingdom under the leadership of the secret world government headed by the Antichrist and the Muslims, the believers and the fighters in the path of God in every place in the world, in groups and as individuals. And he cites, uh, he says, as I watched, quote, this horn, and then uh, the writer adds in, in in parentheses, he says, which is Israel on the outside and the secret world government on the inside, was waging war against the saints and defeating them, which is a quotation, at least partially, from Daniel 7.21. In other words, slaughtering them and annihilating them and by making slaughters for them in Palestine, Afghanistan, India, Kashmir, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, Azerbaijan and Tajikistan, and every place where they hold onto the confession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of God. This is an absolutist interpretation that gives a a sense, first of all, of an overwhelming struggle that is happening against the Muslims, that there's a single hand that is behind all of the different persecutions and wars that are going on against Muslims. They aren't just a number of different entities struggling against Muslims. They are a single one, a secret world government headed by the Jews. And because of this prophecy, then you can get a sense of the need to respond to this attack, this single attack, in an absolute way. Moreover, all of those conflicts are described as being solely because the Muslims hold to the confession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of God. In other words, each one of these is actually, according to this writer, not necessarily a political, cultural, ethnic war, but a religious war. And moreover, he has an answer for the reasons why exactly the Muslims are perceived to be losing right now. It's because they've been prophesied to be losing. In other words, they will be losing until the time when the Mahdi appears, and then he will lead them to to victory. So although this particular writer, Bashir uh, Muhammad Abdullah, uh, who is probably a pseudonym in my opinion, is kind of a bridge figure between uh, normal mainstream uh, apocalyptists and radical Muslims, one can see his emphasis upon the believers and fighters in the path of God, uh, which is one of his code words really throughout uh, uh, throughout the text. Um, he, uh, he does try and bridge that gap between, uh, between the apocalyptus and, uh, and the, the radical Muslims. Okay, then his final uh, selection right there is, he says, the angel then interprets the tribulation following upon the believers and martyrs and clarifies that it is from the leaders and the secret world government, meaning the Zionists mounted upon the crusaders and deceiving them just as the jinn deceive people using human bodies. And this angel says about this hidden government, this Antichrist, quote, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try and change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time, which is a citation from Daniel 7.25. So the final identification right there is clear. The Muslims are losing because they've been prophesied to lose. 
and they will continue to lose until the Mahdi appears and then uh, things will be rectified. So this uh, sort of conspiratorial, exegetical uh, rereading of the Bible is a very interesting one. Um, and it's, uh, it's one that's, uh, that's quite popular. I'm only reading a small selection out of the, uh, the much larger exegesis. But um, suffice it to say that uh, there's a lot more material that can be adduced in this regard. Now, the, one of the major changes that one finds in contemporary Muslim apocalyptic literature uh, is not only does the figure of the Mahdi go down in prominence, but the figure of the Dajjal goes up. Uh, in classical Muslim apocalyptic literature, uh, the Dajjal is described as being rather ridiculous. Uh, he has large ears. Uh, he has uh, serious problems with his eyes. Um, he has uh, various different uh, bodily deformities. Uh, he's of monstrous shape and oftentimes does and says things that are ridiculous and incomprehensible. In uh, contemporary Muslim apocalyptic literature, uh, that changes completely. Uh, the Dajjal is no longer ridiculous, but malevolent and satanic. And he is, moreover, much more seductive than he is in the classical literature. He, uh, taking, again, pages out of things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and other different uh, conspiratorial literature, he has a, a seductively uh, manipulative side. In other words, he is not immediately apparent that he is evil. He has the ability to charm people. No one laughs when he appears. He has the ability to gain followers and to seduce them from the right way into the wrong way. And moreover, he is not, uh, he, he, he's not trying to lead one to, let's say, a ridiculous um, order or lack thereof. He is actually trying to, to create sort of a counterfeit satanic society on earth, a society that would be entirely anti-God by its very nature. That it would rely upon uh, upon technology rather than God. That it would try deliberately to befoul anything that would be sacred uh, towards uh, towards God. And not surprisingly, much of the material that uh, that talks about the Dajjal focuses upon the Dajjal as um, as sometimes being exemplified by. Um, uh, by the United States, by uh, various different uh, countries in the West, sometimes by Israel. Um, almost all U.S. presidents, to some extent, have achieved Dajjal status um, and have been called the Dajjal at some particular time. And oftentimes there's an attempt to, uh, to identify various different evil, uh, proud, arrogant, cities with cities in the United States or in the Western world. Probably the most common of those is the identification of the, of the city of Ad, uh, which is mentioned inside uh, the Quran as being a, 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 a wicked and haughty city, somewhat like uh, we would describe uh, things like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and it's usually described as being a parallel to New York, 
And I'd like to just read to you the, the description right there. It says, it says the, the similarity between Odd the Perished and present-day New York is also that both of them were tyrannical, oppressive, haughty, world-class cities imposing the rule by means of unjust force to divide the rest of the peoples and nations of the world. Everything that happened in Odd of old has happened in America, just as God said, quote, As for Odd, they waxed proud in the land unjustly and said, Who is superior to us in strength? Did they not see that Allah, who created them, is superior to them in strength? And they used to repudiate our signs, which is from Quran 41, 15 through 16. So that material there is actually quite interesting, that, uh, that there's, there's also this, uh, this very strong hostility, as one can see, between uh, the apocalyptist and, uh, and, and settled areas. Buildings, uh, large cities, they present something of a problem for the apocalyptist, because their very existence the very existence of large-scale buildings, monumental constructions, and so forth indicates, to some extent, a rejection of the idea that the world is going to end. If people are willing to invest in building, uh, then they wouldn't uh, believe that the world is going to end. They, they, would, they, they, they would simply wait for the world to end, and there would be no point in that. So they... These type of buildings, these type of large-scale cities and so forth are a problem for the, uh, uh, for the apocalyptists and very strongly need to be judged. There's need for, uh, for them to be judged in some way or another. Uh, the whole focus, actually, of Abdullah's book is, uh, is some sort of an earthquake or cataclysmic attack that will supposedly strike New York, uh, which he hopes will happen around 1997 or 1998. Um, so the Dajjal uh, also uh, draws his support uh, from his secretive actions. He is a, he's a world-class figure. He uh, has some sort of status. He, um, he manipulates all of the elites of the world into doing various different things. He's very strongly associated with Jews and Judaism. Now, this is something that, again, you can find in classical Muslim literature, but it isn't emphasized as much as it is uh, in contemporary Muslim literature. That anti-Semitic aspect of the Dajjal uh, is brought out by the, uh, by the uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. There's a whole group of various different anti-Semitic uh, tropes and myths that will be brought to bear in the use of the Dajjal, um, that he's trying to transform people, oftentimes using technological means, sometimes using sexual means. Uh, he has all sorts of different secret agents everywhere. Uh, they could be almost anybody, and oftentimes uh, these apocalyptic writers will spend page after page after page trying to decide who is a hidden Jew and who is not. Um, not surprisingly, they come up to, with the conclusion that just about every Arab leader is a hidden Jew. Um, usually the identification of the conspiracy is, is that Israel equals the United States or the United States equals Israel. Uh, there's close identification between those two. Um, the UN equals the Antichrist. 
Uh, one of my favorite book uh, covers uh, this flying saucer that has beamed down a Jew, which you can tell because he's wearing a great big cross of David or star of David on his on his neck, and he's speaking to this little group of black cloaked uh, acolytes uh, that you can't see their faces or anything like that, uh, and they're standing in front of this golden temple. Uh, which is uh, draped with stars of David and marked UN. So it's like uh, it's like a whole bunch of uh, of different uh, conspiratorial and pseudo scientific uh, beliefs being amalgamated into one uh, sort of thing. Sometimes the West itself is identified as being a Dajjal like. Uh, entity, in other words, the Dajjal is is denuded from his uh, from his humanity and is simply given maybe what we might call a civilizational characteristic. Um, I think that one of the reasons why the Dajjal is uh, such a prominent figure in uh, contemporary Muslim apocalyptic is the fact that once again, like with the Hadith of Thalban, there's need for Muslims to uh, to have a plausible, large enemy to explain the reasons why Islam is in the position that it is. Because Muslims uh, are so grimly aware of the fact that, uh, that Muslim civilization is not in a dominant uh, place throughout the world, there's need to explain and to kind of externalize and to create a very large enemy that can plausibly be keeping the Muslims down and also give them dignity when they fight it. And this is a problem with regard to Israel, because Israel is so small and has repeatedly defeated Muslim countries, it doesn't have the sort of dignity to fight it that it should. In other words, there should be an enemy that should be worthy of Muslims to fight uh, rather than just this minuscule, puny little country that even in its puniness has still managed to defeat uh, Arabs and Muslims on a repeated basis. And so if there can be some sort of a conspiracy that is so large that it encompasses all of the world, it includes the United States, it includes Europe, it includes all these different hidden Jews that are heads of, of Muslim countries and continually betray them and backstab them and so forth, then there can be some sort of a, of a sense that, uh, that Muslims are fighting a plausible world-class enemy instead of just wallowing in their own failures and getting nowhere. World Zionism is oftentimes uh, described in this literature as being something of an existential evil. Um, and it's oftentimes connected with other different evils, such as liberalism and democracy, um, which uh, for radical Muslims are uh, basically religions, foreign religions, um, that uh, serve to tempt the believers away from uh, the truth. And this is something that you oftentimes find with regard to radicals inside Iraq uh, or other different places. They will say that... that um, that democracy is actually uh, an idolatrous religion. Now, just because uh, just because the the Mahdi doesn't appear 
uh, to be that important inside uh, contemporary uh, Sunni literature doesn't mean that he isn't there at all. One of the problems with the Mahdi is that he um, has to be chosen. And it's not easy to visualize how exactly that would come about. Uh, if he's a member of the prophet's family, it's true that uh, the, can- the number of the candidates would be comparatively low. But even so, there would still be need to choose between several different candidates. But the problems would be compounded if one were to make a choice on the basis of the best possible Muslim which remembering that one of the bases for for Sunnism is that the best possible Muslim is the one who has the legitimate right to rule. And so how exactly one would choose who is the best possible Muslim is not really something that's easy to understand. But the problems are even more compounded by the fact that anybody who is chosen, presumably, would have an element of self-aggrandizement that would be fundamentally unacceptable. In other words, the only person who would be the best possible Muslim would be the person who wouldn't put himself forward. The, best per- uh, the, the person who put himself forward would actually uh, be problematic because he would be desirous of power. And so it's something of a catch-22. How on earth are you supposed to find that best possible Muslim when ideally the best possible Muslim will be the most anonymous Muslim around? And so a number of the different writers will try and actually uh, solve that that question. And one of the most creative, I I find, uh, is this figure by the name of Tawila who wrote, uh, he uh, he said, the Mahdi is a man from the family of the prophet and his name is Muhammad bin Abdullah, of the progeny of Fatima, the daughter of the messenger of God, through the descendants of Al-Hassan. Now notice how he is the descendant of the elder of the two uh, grandsons of the prophet, the one who was willing to give up uh, and make the peace. Whom God will straighten, make him right, during a single night, and will give him success, cause him to understand, and guide him rightly, and give him the expanse of the world and knowledge and the ability to actualize justice after it was previously not like that. In other words, he will be a simple man. He will be not even self-aware. And then in a single night, then God will zap him and, as it were, create him into a totally different creature. It's very interesting how, how that that sort of uh, that sort of trying to, to to get around that conundrum of the anonymous man is the person who needs to be the leader, but how on earth do we make him non-anonymous? So it says he will appear when corruption has passed all boundaries, and people will swear allegiance to him as the commander of the faithful between the Rukun and the Makam. Those are two uh, locations very close to the to the Kaaba. Uh, hoping that the straightening of the situation will be through him, and he will accept it, the rule, reluctantly. 
again, this is one of those one of those characteristics of uh, of the Mahdi is that he needs to uh, to be reluctant about accepting the rule instead of putting himself forward instead of saying I am I, I'm the right guy for uh, for this particular uh, rule. Uh, so he will not know, and they will not know, that he is the expected Mahdi. And previously there will be no calls for him to be Mahdi, and so he will not even know himself. But God will choose him, and the people will choose him suddenly. It's very, very interesting, this, uh, this sort of thing, because in, uh, in most of the previous uh, material that we've looked at, the, the Mahdi is somebody who is very self-aware. He's uh, he's somebody who's uh, who's a descendant of the prophet, or he he has a long period of preparation. This guy has absolutely no preparation. He's a political neophyte. He doesn't know anything, and he is being uh, and he's completely anonymous guy. He's uh, alone in the crowd. God suddenly shines the spotlight on him, and then everybody says he's the Mahdi. Let's go with him. Now, I mean, in in a certain way, this is kind of it's kind of politically naive, but in, in another way, it's it, it's kind of endearing, actually, that one would find this in a political culture that is so dominated by strong men and uh, dictators and so forth who have uh, spent their entire life aggrandizing themselves, building uh, twenty feet sta- high statues of themselves and so forth that. Uh, it's quite amazing <laughs> that that would that they would be so sensitive to that uh, to that whole issue right there. Um, but the Mahdi is extremely important. Uh, he's not he's not as important as he appears in the classical material, but he still he still has importance. And his importance is is basically as that bridge figure that will bring together mainstream apocalyptic movements. And uh, and radical Islamic uh, apocalyptic movements, because they all have to have a goal. They all have to have a goal, and there are substantial differences between them. Essentially, the mainstream apocalyptic movements uh, are suffused with this idea of inevitability. In other words, there's really no need to do anything. There are predictions. God will fulfill them. What are we supposed to do? And so there's no call for action inside, uh, inside uh, mainstream apocalyptic movements. There's no call for, uh, for, for the believer to actually do something in order for those things to come about. And this is probably best uh, exemplified in the, the, uh, the 1997 book of uh, Basama Jarar, who uh, is a leader of a Hamas and who uh, came up with a number of different predictions about the end of Israel, which he said was going to happen in the year 2012. And he came uh, with, uh, with, that, uh, with that prediction on the basis of gematrical interpretation of the Quran. The problem is, is he, absol- is he completely precludes any form of action. And so when he published his book, many in the Hamas movement basically said, well, that's great. We don't have to do anything. God's going to bring Israel to an end in 2012. You've proved it. And and, and what are we supposed to do about that? 
And so uh, each apocalyptic prophecy, as, uh, as it is in mainstream uh, literature, carries with it the possibility that people won't do anything, that they'll just read it and say, okay, well, you know, if God brings the world to an end in the year 2000, that's fine. If he doesn't, well, then that's also fine. If God brings Israel to an end in 2012, then, you know, then, that's, then it'll be true. If it doesn't, then that's fine. But uh, radical Muslim movements want to achieve some sort of action. And so they need to find some sort of tradition like the, like the Hadith of Thalban that will actually make people angry, make people want to actually act instead of just waiting for God to fulfill a, give, a given promise. And so they continually fight against that tendency, the tendency towards laziness. They'll say, they'll say uh, you know, the, the, the first... Muslims, uh, right after the time of the Prophet Muhammad, didn't wait around for prophecies to be fulfilled. In other words, they, they, they took action. They, they participated in the conquest. Many of them died. And therefore, they accomplished de- deeds uh, that were essentially, uh, at least according to them, prophesied. Um, and so it's very important to understand that, that basic tension right there that is resolved to some extent by the figure of the Mahdi. Okay, the figure of the Mahdi really allows for both sides to hope for a given thing. It's a tangible goal for the, for the radical Muslims that to some extent legitimizes all the different violence that they take place, that they, that they, uh, that they initiate. Because otherwise it's completely meaningless. It's nihilistic. For, male, uh, for mainstream apocalyptic groups, the Mahdi represents a, a, a sort of a critique of their society. It's something to strive for because it's so obvious that it can be used as a, as a criterion by which to judge their society. And most of their societies are in need of judging. Uh, most of them are autocratic. Many of them are dysfunctional. Uh, it's hard to say anything else other than that. Now, last of all, um, the issue of dating. Um, dating, as uh, we've mentioned before, is uh, probably one of the most deadly temptations of the apocalyptist. Um, the apocalyptist does seek to some extent to, uh, to energize his audience. Now, that energy can only come by somebody saying that something is immediate. Um, if one believes that the world is going to end in a week, truly believes it, then there's some energy involved in there. One cannot act in the, self, in, in the same way that one could in normal time if you really believe that the world is going to end in a week. So the apocalyptist seeks to, uh, to energize people by giving them a sense that the apocalypse is almost ready to happen. But it's dangerous for him to make any sort of exact predictions. Because if he does, then he might actually have to live through the consequences if he's wrong. And you're amazed at how exact some of these guys are. 
some of the some of the uh, the Muslim apocalyptic writers uh, have said uh, on December first, nineteen ninety seven, an atomic bomb will be blown up at the Vatican. Then, you know, various different terrorist attacks will take place here and there. And so, uh, you know, all these things are on record and so forth. And so they lose huge amounts of credibility if they make pre- uh, predictions and, uh, and really nothing happens. So it's a quandary. They need to say it's about ready to come, but we don't know exactly when. But we've got signs that it's coming and, uh, uh, and those are, are fairly obvious. So the, uh, the goals of the apocalyptist are rather complicated in their, in, in their manifestation. They have, to, uh, they, they, they have to, to create a sense of expectation while at the same time dampening it. And so it is not easy to, to see that uh, in much of, this, uh, much of this material. I'll just give one uh, particular prediction with regard to the, um, uh, the year 2012, which is the current buzz year for Muslims, as with so many different other groups, uh, as far as something happening. Who knows what happens? But uh, I'll uh, give you the words of Safar al-Hawali, who's one of the most prominent of the Sahwa leadership in, um, uh, in Saudi Arabia, probably one of the most high profile of the ulama right there, who wrote in the year 2000, uh, right in the immediate wake of the beginning of the, uh, of the Second Intifada uh, in Israel, he says, the final difficult question remains to be answered. When will the day of wrath come? Now, the, the very interesting, this, uh, this uh, particular tract, which is known as the day of wrath, is Hawali's attempt uh, to speak to Christian evangelicals. Um, and he uses only Christian material, mainly from the book of Daniel, uh, to try and uh, say that the Palestinians are representing the beginnings of God's day of wrath against the Jews. So he says, when will Allah destroy the abomination of desolation, Israel? When will the chains of Jerusalem be broken and its rights returned? The answer has already been implied. When Daniel specified the period between its distress and relief, between the era of anguish and the era of blessing, he put it as 45 years. We have already seen that he specified the time of the establishment of the abomination of desolation as the year 1967, which is what in fact occurred. Uh, 1967, the Six-Day War, uh, the uh, control of uh, Israel uh, over the entirety of the city of Jerusalem. So he said, therefore, the end or the beginning of the end will be in in 1967 plus 45, which equals uh, 2012, or in lunar years, uh, 1433. So it's fascinating to watch predictions like this. Um, I personally don't have any doubt that this will be wrong, just as so many other predictions have been wrong uh, in the past. But uh, apocalyptists continue to try their best to figure God out, and uh, I, for one, believe that he won't be figured out. Thank you.